Well, have you ever been misunderstood by someone? Like someone saw you and just kind of thought there were certain things about you that just totally missed the mark. Well, I remember for me, so I grew up for most of my childhood in Southern California. And when I was starting high school, I moved to the Midwest, to Northern Michigan. It was culture shock for me in many ways. The the weather was a huge thing, right? I was used to being 70 degrees in the winter. What, What are these white flurry things you are talking about? And it was a challenge for me. But one of the things that I found that happened so often when I first moved was that there were so many misconceptions about me. Because of where we lived, it wasn't an area where lots of people would have moved there, especially from a place like Southern California. And there were really, as I think back, probably two misconceptions that I heard over and over and over again. The first misconception was that because I was from Southern California, people assumed that I was a surfer, that I lived by the ocean and that I surfed in the morning, I surfed at night, I surfed on the weekends, that surfing was just a regular part of my life. Now, there are plenty of people who live in Southern California who surf and it is a great place to do it. So I've been told by the people who do. I lived probably a hundred miles from the ocean. I would go swimming in the ocean maybe one time a year. Literally, there were a lot of people in the Midwest who probably traveled to Florida and swam in the ocean more than I did, even though I lived relatively close to it. And even that, I know a lot of people who lived right by the ocean who never surfed at all. But people got this misconception in their minds of this California surfer dude. And that was just kind of how all people from California were. But it wasn't true of me at all. Another thing that people would often assume about me that wasn't true at all was that if you're from Southern California, then of course you've met and know movie stars, right? Because if you're from Southern California, you just walk down the street and you bump into A-list celebrity after A-list celebrity, movie stars, musicians, TV stars. They're just everywhere in Southern California, right? No. No, not, not, not at all how it is. In fact, I've met far more famous people more often in Chicago than I ever did growing up and living in Southern California where I did. This misconception, again, that if you live there, then of course you've met and interacted with these Hollywood stars. See, sometimes we have these misconceptions because we just kind of put a stereotype onto things and it causes us to have misreadings, misunderstandings about certain things. And I think as followers of Jesus in our world and even in the church, there's oftentimes misconceptions about what heaven will be like. Specifically what our experience of heaven will be like. And all you have to do is look at kind of popular level comic strips or movies that show any glimpse of heaven. And you'll get, it's kind of this weird conglomerate of all these different kind of ideas and things of what our experience in heaven will be like. And one of the common things is that we're kind of just these little things that like float around. We sit on a cloud, we play harps all day, and we're kind of like almost like these like animated ghosts that fly all over. Well, our text tonight in 1 Corinthians 15 is going to address an important part of what our future experience of heaven will look like. And the problem is for us as a church today, as it was for the Corinthian church back several hundred years ago, 
was that because we can sense that there's something about our physical bodies that's not fit for heaven, it's easy for us to, to, or it's easy for us to have a misconception of what it will be like. It's hard for us to imagine our bodies as they are currently constructed in heaven. And so in teaching on the resurrection, as we're going through this chapter here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul now shifts his focus as we're going to start tonight at verse 35 to this idea of the resurrection body and what those resurrection bodies will be like and how it impacts our lives now as we think forward to the future experience that we have at the resurrection of the dead. And as we look at this passage tonight, we're going to see three characteristics of our resurrection bodies. So again, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting tonight at verse 35. It says this, But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now this is the the attitude of a hypothetical question. Paul isn't probably pointing out a singular person, but a pervasive attitude amongst the church there in Corinth that they couldn't fathom how the resurrection of the dead worked. They couldn't imagine what this resurrection body would be like. And so in some senses, they probably had abandoned hope that it was actually going to come. And so he puts out this hypothetical question for the first time, bringing up this idea of the body. What kind of body do they have? Verse 36, you foolish person. Now, Again, he's talking to a hypothetical person, so Paul's not being mean towards one person. But the fool is one who looks at things simplistically and denies the work of God. And he's saying, listen, just because you don't understand how it works, you can't say it doesn't exist because by doing so, you would deny the work of God. Thus, they would be foolish. Then he jumps in. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So he, he gives us some illustrations here. And the first one is an agricultural illustration, which would have worked very well in this time, in this setting, that people would have been much more familiar with than those of us who live kind of like we do in large urban areas. Um, This idea of a seed, a seed when planted in the ground, it seems by all senses to die when it's buried or when it's planted underneath the dirt. Yet it changes, right? God supersedes over it and there is a change that takes place and new life emerges from it. And he's, he's drawing this parallel, right? That just as something goes down and it changes what comes out. So will our bodies be buried, that's this idea of death, and a change will happen and something different will come about after it. He continues, verse 39. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. So again, he's, he's explaining here, he's talking now about how each kind of animal, each kind of flesh, if you will, is designed for a specific purpose, right? And so we can see this, right? That, that, that birds are designed for their specific purpose of flying through the air. That the animals on the ground are uniquely designed for the place in which they live. That the, the fish in the sea are uniquely designed and God-given designed so that their flesh exists where they are placed. He's helping them see this idea throughout all of God's creative order 
that each one has a specific purpose where God places it. And he has uniquely designed them to be so. The birds fit so well in the sky, not by accident, because that's how God designed them. The animals can run so quickly along the ground, not by accident, but because that's how God designed them. A fish can dwell so well in the water because that's how God designed them. God designs different kind of bodies to fit different purposes. Verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for, for stars differ from star in glory. Again, he's talking now about went from the animal kingdom to a third illustration, looking up at the universe, looking up. And of course, we know now with our scientific discoveries and all that far more than even the author realized back then. But when you look at the sky, you realize that things are different. The sun, the moon, the stars, these are different and they have a different kind of character about them. And so this principle that he's setting forth here by using these examples of, of the stars, of animals, and of a seed, is he's helping the, the church understand that different domains, different areas of life require different bodies. And so this first point, all right, the first characteristic of our resurrection body that we see in this passage is that our resurrection bodies will be fit for heaven. All right, our resurrection bodies will be fit for heaven. That God will design our resurrection body in a perfect environment, in a perfect way, so that we will create, recreate it and experience heaven exactly as we should. And so this body that we experience now here on the earth will not be exactly the same in heaven, but that it will be made by God for the specific purpose of dwelling there with him. See, recently, this past winter, I was able to escape the winter for a few, about, well, about a week or so. And it was perfect. It was, if you remember in Chicago, right after we had that massive, massive snowstorm. Not too long after that, I went with some family down to South Florida. It was beautiful. The sun shone. It was amazing. And we went to the Everglades while we were down there, took a boat ride through the swamps and got to see some of the alligators that are on the side. And it was amazing just as they were there talking about the alligators and, and all of the unique things about them, how they eat, how they sleep, all these different characteristics and how their bodies are uniquely designed for the environment in which they live. See, so often when we think of heaven and we would think of our resurrection body, we would start to worry about things like, what, what will they look like? What, what exactly will, will it be like that, that we just need to pause instead of just having the speculation on how they will work? Because the reality is scripture doesn't give us a lot of insight as to specifics. But he's reminding us here is when we look at creation and we see the designed world that God has made, that we can rejoice that God will make it absolutely perfect because of how he has created this world to be. That we see that certain things exist in the water, in the air, on land, and they're exactly created for that purpose. We can trust that our resurrection bodies will be made for the exact right purpose of living in heaven. And when we realize the beauty and intricacy of how God has made this world, this creation which we live in now, it should bring us joy in anticipation for the one to come. That our resurrection bodies will be one that are perfectly fit 
for dwelling in heaven with him. Passage continues in verse 42. It says this, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. See, the second characteristic of the resurrection is this, that our resurrection bodies will be distinct from our earthly bodies. Our resurrection bodies will be distinct from our earthly bodies. And to to help us see some of this distinction, he has four contrasts that he has very quickly in these two and a half verses. He kind of hits them real quick, right? Like it was this, it will be this. It was this, it will be this. It may be frustrating for you because some of the questions, the specifics you may have, he doesn't answer, but he takes kind of big categories that talks about what we have to look forward to that our resurrection bodies will be different than what we experience today. So let's just look briefly at these four contrasts in a little more detail. First, we see in verse 42, what is sown, that is what we experience here, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What we have now is something that the clock is ticking. It will run out. It will die. But this body that is raised will not run out. It will not die. Romans 8.21 says that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That idea that we live under bondage to corruption. See, no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you work out, no matter how perfect of a diet you eat, no matter how much plastic surgery you may get, no matter how much hair dye you may purchase from the grocery store, face it, we're all getting older every single day. And our physical bodies don't work like how we can remember them and how they used to. And our hair starts to turn a little different color or maybe it starts to fall out and aches and pains come into life. And we know that sooner rather than later, when you look at the scope of eternity, our lives will pass away. We are perishable. We, if you're going to compare us to an item that you buy at the store, our lives are like a gallon of milk. That it will not last in your fridge for very long. And when it does, it will start to spoil very quickly. Things break down and die. But... At the resurrection, we will be raised imperishable. We go from a gallon of milk to a Twinkie that will exist forever. Okay, that's a little sarcastic, but you get what I'm saying. There will be no decay, no corruption of our physical selves with this resurrection body. The second contrast that we see here is it says that, sorry, I got to find my place, that it's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. It's talking about the experience that we have in our physical bodies here on earth. Paul says this about his own life earlier in this book in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, In this present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and we still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Seeing that that's this experience of living for God in this world as it seems so dishonorable being pushed down, but we are raised to experience God's glory. And we will not be 
persecuted. We will not be pushed down like this. Those who are his children in the life to come. And so we are sown this life. We experience dishonor, but raised to glory with Jesus. The third contrast in verse 43, it is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Paul talks to the Corinthians church about his weakness, which we don't know for sure, but most scholars speculate as a physical weakness in his next book to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. A, a well-known passage in which he says this, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with the weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So he talks about how in this world, we are weak, we are feeble, we are broken. But we will be raised and experience God's perfect power in our resurrection bodies. And, and Paul looks forward with great anticipation to this day, this day of sharp distinction from the weakness and the frailty that we may feel here in the flesh. The last contrast there in verse 44 says, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. A natural body raised a spiritual body. Earlier in the book, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he used these two terms, natural and spiritual, to, to distinguish between a non-Christian and a, and a Christian. Those who don't possess the Spirit versus those who have the Spirit of Christ living in them. And so this idea of something being natural to spiritual is he's looking forward to the day when one is fully embodied, fully dwelling, living with the Holy Spirit. One scholar says he could have almost said here, we will go from being natural to being supernatural. Not God himself, but being like him, being made to be with him. See, while there is, it, says, it seems in scripture, some continuity with our physical bodies. Paul here has in mind when we envision what our bodies will be like, how we will dwell with Jesus forever at the resurrection of the dead. Paul is saying here that your resurrection body is not just spruce some better up version of yourself. It's not take you and put you back in your physical prime, whether that was 21 or 25 or whatever you may think. It's not just go back to that. But Paul has something in mind, something better altogether. Something that is made to be with God, that has no weaknesses, that doesn't perish. See, whatever we may think of when we think of our resurrection bodies, whatever we may think of when we think of what heaven will be like, this passage helps us see that it will actually be even better than we could imagine. I remember many years ago, I think it was about four or five years ago, um, my wife and I were able to take a vacation to New Zealand. And we love traveling outdoors. We're hikers. We like to be outside as much as possible. And so we were looking forward with such great anticipation to this trip, a place that is known just for its amazing natural beauty. We had high expectations. And when we went and spent two weeks there, we were completely blown away. Because as great as we thought it was going to be, it far surpassed it in literally every single way. Just day in and day out as we traveled and hiked and would get up early and stay up late for the sunset. So often we just kept looking at ourselves and saying, how can this be? This is so amazing. This is so much better than even we could have thought. 
See, when we look forward to heaven, I hope you look forward with high expectations. And I want to assure you tonight that whatever expectations you have, God will exceed them. You will not be disappointed in your resurrection body when you meet Jesus. You won't be like, oh man, I wish my elbow would have worked a little bit better. I still have that bum knee. No, it will be beyond your expectations what Jesus has for us. First Corinthians in this book, in chapter 2, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2.9, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. What our hearts have not even imagined, that's what God has prepared for us. So the resurrection bodies that we have to look forward to are not just new and improved, but they are transformed and better than we ever imagined. That's what we have to look forward to at the resurrection of the dead. Picking it up here in the middle of verse 44, it says this, If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven." Just as we have also borne the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, in case you didn't pick it up, this second Adam, this man of heaven, he doesn't actually name him, so we got to make sure we're clear here. That's Jesus. All right, that, that's who he's talking about. The second Adam, a metaphor that he's used already in this chapter and well throughout in Paul's writings. The, the second Adam being Jesus himself. So this, this spiritual man is the one from heaven is Jesus himself. Now, as he has before in this passage, Adam and Jesus aren't just individuals, but they're representatives of all who will follow after him. And so he's saying Adam was the first man of flesh and all who came after him had some basic characteristics that were true of Adam. So it will be of Jesus that all who are raised with the resurrection body will have certain things that are true of them, just like Jesus did. In Adam, we all have similarities in something for this world. In Christ, we all will have similarities in something for the world to come. When do we get to experience this? Well, it's at the resurrection of the dead, when Jesus returns. And Paul's going to go into more detail about that as he anticipates his resurrection body and what that means for us further in this chapter. So join us next Sunday night as we'll look at that concluding passage. But by comparing what we will have coming to this second Adam, just as we were born in the first one, we will be raised in newness of life to the second one. It's the third characteristic of the resurrection is this. Our resurrection bodies will be like Jesus's. Our resurrection bodies will be like Jesus's body was. Just as Adam and everything flowed in a similar way, Jesus is set up and everything will flow in a similar way from him. So what do we know about Jesus's resurrection body? We don't want to read too much into the details. You notice here 
that Paul doesn't get down to the nitty gritty. He doesn't give you all the, the features. He doesn't give you all the insulation specs. But he's worried about the fact that we get what we have to come is just like Jesus. And for him, that's enough. But we know from the Gospels that, that Jesus' body after the resurrection was tangible. This is not some spiritual, non-physical existence that he's talking about. It, it was a tangible body. We, we can surmise from Jesus that, that he ate, right? He ate with his disciples, but it doesn't seem like he had to for sustenance. But he ate for the pure enjoyment of it. We know that Jesus could also appear and disappear. He passed through locked doors. But even then, we must be cautious in drawing too many parallels from Jesus's physical experience here on this earth in his resurrection body and what we will experience. Jesus himself actually wasn't fully glorified until the ascension to heaven. And that's where his resurrection body is in which he dwells in now. But what Paul wants to make sure is he doesn't answer specific questions. He doesn't get into all the kind of details of how it will work. But he wants the Corinthian church and he would want us to know this. That what we have, the body that we will have in the future, we have because of Jesus. What we have, we have because of him. And for Paul, that's enough. He doesn't have to get into everything else that could be or would be from there. He leaves it kind of at the very top because he doesn't want to distract from the number one thing. That what we have is because of what Jesus has done for us. He ends this section as he so often does, highlighting the glories of Jesus. And that without Jesus, we have no hope. And so when we think of the resurrection of the dead, when we think of this physical experience that we will have in heaven, this passage helps us see that, that it will be made by God for that purpose. Just as he made each domain in creation specific for it, so will our resurrection bodies be uniquely shaped for heaven. And that should fill us with such great joy and excitement. Our resurrection bodies will be different than what we have now. There won't be any sleepless nights. There won't be any knee pain. There won't be any wearing down or broken parts in heaven. But we will be transformed. Perishable will be imperishable. What is dishonorable will be glory. From weakness to power. From natural to spiritual. And lastly, we have this because of Jesus. What he has done for us. The second Adam coming, defeating death, gives us the hope that one day we will be with him and we will be made to be like him. That's the hope that we have. Jesus is our hope when we look forward to the future and what heaven will be like. God, we do indeed thank you. We do thank you that we serve a risen Savior. And we thank you that you are a God who has so intricately designed this world in which we live. That when we look around, your fingerprints are so obvious and evident all around us. And God, what we have in store for us is so beyond our, even our own capacity to imagine. God, you are such a good and gracious God that you will give us all good things. And so when we look forward to heaven, we look forward, God, with such great joy and anticipation. We look forward to such worship because it's all because of Jesus and because of what he has done for us. 
And it's in his name we pray. Amen.